Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. That was a good singing, everybody. It was nice. Give yourself a pat on the back. It was a beautiful choir this morning. That was supposed to be a joke. Sorry, you missed it. Uh, I'll do better next time, but that's okay. Sometimes you bomb. I found that out. I've been preaching for a long time. Sometimes it just doesn't go like you think it will. So, hey, we are um, actually in our last installment of a long series. We've been here for now. This is seven weeks in a series, as you see, on the screen called Habits. And we've been talking all about habits. We've been talking about the habits that we should have if we are in Christ, the habits that add life to us. Also, how to stop some bad habits, how to start some good habits, how to have some discipline to maintain the habits that we have. Also, how prayer is something that we need to make a habit. And ultimately, over all the things that we may choose to do, nothing is more important than the spiritual things that that we do to incorporate into our life. And then last week, I I landed on uh, just how our thoughts impact our actions and our actions become our habits. And today, I just want you to know that today's message has conviction written all over it. It just does. I've been sitting in it all week long, and you see, and that wasn't even a joke. And yet, I don't know. I just, I, I don't know what to think, but it, I'm just going to keep going. So I literally have been thinking all week. I'm like, wow, this message has conviction written all over it because we're going to talk about words. And the thing about words is we all have words that we wish we didn't say. We all do. And we all, we all have words that we're so thankful that someone else said to us. And so we're going to talk about words today and the power of words. But I also want to just, before I jump all into that, I want to just let you know of what's happening next week. We start a brand new series going through the book of Philemon. The series is called Bury the Hatchet. It's going to be a, a great, powerful series, three weeks. This is a great opportunity for you to invite Uh, the friend that you've been trying to see if they would come to church with you, maybe bribe them to go to lunch afterward, tell them our services, get out early, whatever it takes, just get them in the door. Just get them in the door. Uh, Brand new series, be here for three weeks. And this is, man, this is so true to real life, what we're going to talk about. And this very short, really a postcard size letter in the New Testament. And we're going to camp out here for the next three weeks. And if you are an overachiever, you can read that this week. It's like 25 verses, won't take you long. But we're going to pull out some deep truth out of it, and it's going to be impactful. I know that it is. So that's what's coming next week and in the weeks to come. I want us to rally back to this point, though. We talk about habits, and we've talked about the ins and outs of habits. But I want you to know nothing is more important than the conduct that you have if you are in Christ. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said to the church in Philippi, he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, whatever happens, whenever adversity comes, no matter how you feel, no matter what's going on, no matter who's in your path, no matter if you feel like somebody's adding you, like on social media, if you feel like somebody's coming at you at work, you feel like you're the only one at work who's maintaining faith, says, whatever happens, whatever happens. And the Apostle Paul, you, you may think, well, what gives him the credibility to say this? Like, wasn't he like in some cush palace or something? Not in the Bible that I've read. As a matter of fact, he's in jail. He's, in, he's in, in house arrest when he's writing this. And that book is called, it's known as kind of the book of joy because 
four short chapters and yet so impactful. And he says in the middle of this, something that he's learned from his walk with God and that he imparts to us, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So whatever happens, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel and the words that we use. Here's, here's a little meat on the boat, so to speak. Our conduct will never outpour, outperform the content of our character. So we may say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm with that. Yeah, like whatever happens, I'm going to conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel. I just want you to know that's great. And you can be so like self-propelled in that. You can have so much energy and vim and vigor and think I can do this. And the reality is you can't do this alone. You can't. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach some sort of therapeutic way of living the Christian life under your own power and expecting good results. As a matter of fact, the people in the Bible who lived under their own, under their own power never had lasting and good results. They were always damaging and, and negatively impacting their lives. So that I never want you to think that the Bible is just a place that we go for therapy just for us to feel empowered to go live the self-propelled life. That's just not true. And it's not going to be true if we want to have words that fit and that we're conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel because that whatever happens is going to happen a lot. It's going to happen. Like the Apostle Paul telling us, he says, whatever happens, you know, like the whatever part, there's going to be a lot of whatevers that happen in your life. And if you're living a self-propelled and not a spirit-controlled life, you're going to go off the rails very quickly. And while the damage is, that is done, it may not seem huge at the time, but let me tell you, it will, impact, it will impact your life and the lives around you faster and more deeply than what you can even fathom. Our conduct will never outperform the content of our character. Our character always needs to be rooted in the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and of the joint of the, and of, to the soul and of the spirit of joints and of marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart so we need to dwell richly in the word of god if we're going to be the people of god who brings good into this world and also glorifies god in the process here's a little something i think that that will help us maybe we start thinking about uh, our thoughts, and then also our words and our beliefs. Who was like me and grew up as a kid where you would go take one of uh, sometimes mom's jars out of the kitchen, although maybe she told you not to, and you'd go out in the yard and you'd pick up grasshoppers or crickets and you put it in the jar? Who did that other than me? That's all right. Mom's not here. She doesn't care. It's a long time, long time ago. Totally did that. Now, who also, who also was like so excited once you actually caught something that when you caught something, you got a little bit more of it than what you wanted, and then you left a little bit in your hand. Anyone? Anyone? No one other than me. Yeah, okay, everybody. And it, it always smelled, didn't it? But when you didn't crush them in your hand and ask for forgiveness later, um, when you didn't do that, you picked it up, and you took one of mom's jars. This is one of Marla's jars. No cricket or grasshopper, though. This is only for the uh, illustration here, right? We, you'd put it in here, and then you put it inside the jar, there's an interesting phenomenon that happens. I don't know if this happens with crickets, but I know this happens with grasshoppers. If you put a grasshopper in a jar and you put it in there long enough, 
like at first it'll go in the jar and the grasshopper will jump and jump and jump and it will hit itself against the lid over and over and over and over and over again. But then there's a point in time where the grasshopper learns, wow, I just keep hitting my head on the lid of this jar and then the grasshopper stops jumping. You see, there's a very similar thing that happens in in someone's life when we have self-limiting beliefs. Because a self-limiting belief is like the lid on the jar and the grasshopper goes in and the grasshopper has the ability to jump, but yet when the grasshopper goes in the jar and the self-limiting belief is because there's this lid on my, temp- on my potential and maybe you've tried to formulate some good habits and you've been jumping, jumping, jumping and you're just tired of hitting your head against the lid. And I just want to encourage you, some of you have decided already that I'm not going to do that habit anymore. I'm going to give up on that habit, even if it was a God-inspired habit, because your head hurts, and yet you maybe right now are starting to formulate some self-limited beliefs to say, I'm not even going to jump anymore. I'm not going to have this happen anymore, because you started to believe that you're not worthy of it. You are worthy of good. You are. You're worthy of good, but we have to do something about these self-limiting beliefs. Here's something I know to be true. If you're filling in the blanks, you can fill in the blanks with everybody else. Thoughts become words. Words become actions, and actions become habits. Your thoughts, your self-limiting beliefs, your beliefs about yourself and about the future, whether it's optimistic or pessimistic, your thoughts become words, your words become actions, and your actions become your habits, and the habits become your life. They just become your life. And then you become the person that you are because the thoughts that you had, and if we don't do something with, with our beliefs, and if we don't actually do something to manage our self-limiting beliefs, we can start to believe that we don't have potential, that we don't have good available to us, that maybe even that God doesn't love us. And I just want you to know, friends, that's just simply not true. God loves you more deeply and more richly than what you can even imagine. He loves you in spite of all of the terrible things that you and I have done. That God the Father loves you so much that he was willing to 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 just have the glimpse of the idea that his son would come to earth and that the son of God would willingly submit himself to go on the cross to take away your sins. And he didn't do so to prove that he was God. He was God all by himself in heaven. He did so so that we could have a pathway to be right with God and so that we could actually be one with him in heaven. God loves you more than what you can even imagine. Our words have incredible power. You could sense it in the room as soon as I started talking about words and I talked about conviction that happens with just talking about words and and the impact of words in our life or maybe not hearing words in our life and the words that maybe we've even said to ourselves. Words have just such an impressible, impressible effect on our life. And the Bible tells us this over and over and over. This is one of the instances. Proverbs 18.21 says this, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue has the power of life and death. You may say, well, pastor, I'm sick of the extremes. Isn't there something else? The author of this proverb is telling us, he's like, the words that we use... And the words that are uttered out of our mouth and that come by way of our tongue have the potential of bringing life or death. 
And how do I know this is true? I know this is true, and so do you. Because there are people in your past that you probably don't talk to anymore because the words that they said to you way back when, and when they said those words, they said it over and over and over again, and you didn't know what to do, so you wrote them off. Because the words became so powerful to you, and and I would just say this, that's not actually what God would want you to do. Because God doesn't want you to sever a relationship with someone just because words they said to you, maybe even over and over and over. God just doesn't want to sever a relationship simply because you stopped hearing something like that. I I tell you that just by way of illustration because we can all illustrate this point. The words matter, don't they? And what comes out of the tongue has the power of life and death. Speaking life or not. Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of this passage, he said it in this way, words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. He said they're either poison or fruit. You choose. Wow. So I want to offer you up this bit of comfort and truth. If you change your words, you can actually change your life. If you change your words, you can actually change your life. Because our words let us know if we're either living like a victor or a victim. If we're living like a a victor, somebody who's living victoriously, we have good habits and a good character, and we see life in a positive way that we know we have a good future. But if you live your life like a victim, victims particularly have bad habits in their life, and their character shows it, and their view on the rest of their life and the world is pessimistic. So our words can either bring life Or they can bring death. They can either bring hope or they can bring despair. But the good news is if you change your words, you can change your life. There's power in the words that you speak. And I'm going to get into that in just a moment as to why that's true. I think it's interesting, though, as when we start talking about words, in particular the the words that we talk about, that we say to ourselves, does anybody else talk to themselves? It doesn't make you weird. It makes you human, by the way. Um, now we're going to sift the rest of the room. Does anybody answer their own questions? Anyone? Keep your eye on those people. That's the ones, okay? That's... Oof, we need to pray right now. See, for us, we all, we all do things with our words. We all talk to ourselves, And it's the things that we say to ourselves that tells us what we actually believe about ourselves. It's the things that we say to ourselves that tells us, the little breadcrumbs, it tells us what we actually believe about ourselves. So if you you have moments to where you say to yourself, you know what, today's a good day. I'm doing, today, I... I did pretty well today. I'm not, not in a gloating, prideful way, but you say, wow, today was a good day. Or you wake up in the morning and, and you're just like, you know what? God's given me another day. God's given me another day. You're setting yourself up to believe that, the re- that God is good and that he's going to provide for good in the rest of your day. But if you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, it's still not spring. No birds chirping. Thread of snow. 
Oh, but, but it, what's reassuring in Illinois, it's, you know, it's a high of 32, chance of snow. The next day, it's going to be 65 and sunny, you know. That's about as real as it gets, isn't it? But you see, many times we let those types of things dictate our lives. And what we say in those moments and many others, they actually tell us about what's going on inside of us. So it's the things that we say to ourselves that tells us what we actually believe about ourselves. And I've noticed this, and the Bible confirms this, that our self-talk is often an exaggerated version of reality. Our self-talk is often an exaggerated version of reality. I'll give you some examples of this in the New Te- or excuse me, the Old Testament. Go back to Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Old Testament, uh, the last book of the Pentateuch. And I'm going to just draw like three or four different verses. So if you have your Bible, go to the left in your Bible to Deuteronomy 7, verse 17. I'll give you a brief context of this. And we're just going to see that this, this self-talk that's there. And what we're going to see specifically is how God knows exactly what the people of God are going to say to themselves, which I think is, is kind of a mind-bender for me, but that God knows not just what's going on, He literally knows what we're going to think before we think it. And we see this confirmed in this passage. There was a very, this is a very positive time, and God has just done some amazing things. In this passage, He's recalling the history of what God had done and Bringing the Ten Commandments had just been talked about. The Shema had just been talked about in Deuteronomy 6. And this was the mandate for Jewish families, for them to make sure that their faith doesn't just die in their generation, that they, that they bring their faith and they stir faithfulness in every generation after that. And it's known as the Shema, and it's very... We talk about this, and this passage gets preached probably once every couple of years. It's just an incredible passage. And, and, and God is just giving these instructions. And then he lands upon this just after giving all these positive things. God says this, and he's talking like after they, they've gotten into the promised land and after uh, the, the, when they're now driving out the nations who were inhabiting the promised land. This is what God says. Verse 17. Chapter 7, he says, You may say to yourselves, These nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? So he knows what their self talk is. And he's saying ahead of time, He's like, You're going to say these things to yourself. And you're going to say these things. You're going to say, These nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But God gives the antidote in verse 18. He says, but do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. You saw with your own eyes all these great trials and miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm, which the Lord your God brought you out. It's an exaggerated version of reality. It says, I know there's going to be a time where you're in here and you're like, you're going to be overwhelmed thinking that what you're in the middle of is something that you're just, it's out of control. And God reminds them in verse 17, chapter 7, he says, no, no, no. Remember, it's under control. I brought you here. They're not more powerful than me. The next chapter, chapter 8, verse 17, says this. You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. 
He says, so there's going to be a time where you're just going to pat yourself on the back and say, I did this. That was about me. I did this, all this wealth. I'm making it rain, and it's all because of me. I did it. I earned it. I'm worth it. And notice what God says in verse 18. But remember, God is so gentle. He says, but remember, when you have that exaggerated sense of reality, he says, but remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. He says, remember, Remember when you thought you were so powerful and connected and you got that degree and you stored up money and you made all those investments and now you get to retire early or you hope to retire early. He says, remember, that was God doing that. It wasn't you so you could pat yourself on the back. He says, remember, an exaggerated sense of reality. The next chapter, full of them. Deuteronomy 9, verse 4 and 5. After the Lord has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. He says, so so when you're ruminating in self-talk and you're like, you know what? It's no wonder God did that because we're good. Like, of course God would do that because, I mean, look at us. We're good. Of course he'd do that for us. Like, we're righteous. Like, it only makes sense that God would be on our side because we're righteous. Notice what God says next. God says to them, he says, no, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to, uh, that you, excuse me, it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to go in and take possession of the land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, no, no, no. It ain't, it ain't because you're righteous. It isn't because God's just saying, well, I think I'm just going to join the winning team, and you're apparently the winning team. That's not confirmed in the Scripture. As a matter of fact, In Romans 3, we see something quite the contrary. That passage of Scripture in in Romans 3, verse 10 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. There's not one of us that says, you know what? Ah, I'm good. Like, I I would just wish everybody else would just see the world the way that I do because everything could be right. If they could just do what I do, and if they would just do what I say. Oh. And God says, no, 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 loved one, that's just simply not true. You're not where you are because of your unrighteousness. You're where you are because the righteousness of God has been imparted to you. Because there was nothing righteous in you, and God acted on your behalf to give you a righteousness that you didn't deserve by his grace and his mercy. So he took you from being dead in sin, and now he's made you alive in Christ. So your righteousness is not rooted on you and on your story. Instead, it's on God's story, God's redemptive story in your life. You see, we say things like this, and and there's... Another one, I could share more. I'm just going to share one more. Deuteronomy 18. I'm on a roll, so I'm just going to keep going. Verse 21 says this, chapter 18. 
You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has been spoken by the Lord? It's actually a really good question. There's a lot of people who wonder that, like, I don't know, was this message from the Lord or was this from man? It's a good question. Not to be cynical, it's a good one. Notice what God says, because they're saying this to themselves. They're like, I don't know, should I believe what, what this guy says or what she says? Should I believe this? And God gives the answer. He says, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. It's pretty clear. So if somebody promises something that simply doesn't come true, probably not the Lord, probably themselves. Now, we're all over the Bible this morning, a little bit of Bible study. We're good with that. Go to the right in your Bible to the book of James. James 3, right smack dab in the middle of this book of the Bible. This is one of the most practical books of the Bible. Very practical. Practical doesn't mean easy, though. Just because it reads practically and just because we think, oh, we might be able to do this doesn't mean we can do it under our own power. We absolutely need God to do all of this. But this, in context in James 3, is talking about taming the tongue. And I'm going to spend the rest of the time working out and applying this, knowing that the things that either we say to ourselves to keep them being an exaggerated sense of reality but also the things that we say to other people so that we know the right things to say and when the thought crosses our mind as to what we are supposed to do. Verse 3, chapter 3, says this. When we put bits into the mouths of horses, we make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds... They're steered by a very small rudder whenever the pi- wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So he says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses, I just so happen to have one. I know nothing of horses other than they're beautiful and terrifying. That's what I know about horses. You probably know more about horses than I do, but I can tell you, because someone told me who does know horses, that this indeed is a bit. The rest of this is what you would pull, like the reins, if you're going to cause it to go right and left. Again, I don't know anything about horses, but I know that this is really a very small thing to control such a powerful animal. This is the actual part that would go in a horse's mouth. Anybody want to shake hands later? Anyone? Um, this, is the, this is the bit, and as you would pull on the reins, the, you can guide the horse under normal circumstances, unless, of course, they're not, you know, crazy or something, but you'd be able to pull them and get them to stop or turn left or turn right, and it's something so small that can cause something so powerful to turn and to change. The other analogy, sorry, I couldn't bring one in here, was a rudder of a boat. I really wanted to bring in a rudder of an aircraft carrier just so you'd have an idea. I didn't have one of those at the house, so um, you have to Google that later. But the rudder on, a, on a, a boat or a ship is actually so small in comparison to the rest of, of the craft itself. And this is the analogy that James uses. And then he also used the analogy of of how such a small spark can cause such 
a great fire. One of the commentaries that I was uh, going through and, and reading explained it in this way, and it, it changed really the way that I've looked at this passage. I've preached through this passage numerous times before. This is what the commentary said. With both illustrations, James uses a bit and a rudder, and they both are used to, they are both to be used in circumstances. They're both to be used in circumstances. They're both to be used to alter a force on the outside to make something else happen. It continues, the tongue is the key factor in consistent living. Circumstances vary. There are pressures of adversity and the pressures of prosperity. There are sudden and unexpected shocks, the blows which life administers to us. Can we hold our course? James' marine illustration is not all the way to the mark of the best description of life and its tides, currents, and storms. Once again, there's a rudder to hold the ship on course, and the tongue is that rudder. Both the bit and the rudder must overcome opposing forces. You see, the control of the tongue is more than evidence of spiritual maturity. It's actually a means to spiritual maturity. It's not just as a way of how I used to look at it and saying, oh, if I can, you know, it's just controlling my tongue is just evidence of spiritual maturity. When I consulted the the commentaries and other remarks about this passage, my frame of thinking changed because I realized that that whether it's a bit or a rudder, both of those have illustrations and there's the opposing force. And the opposing force that what would happen in our life is the same thing that the Apostle Paul talked about in Philippians 1, 7, whatever happens. That's the whatever. The circumstances that would make us want to say things with our, our mouths that either can offer life or they can offer death. And now what James is saying, that the words that we have, and there's power in the tongue to either do one or the other, but know that there are opposing forces against us, and the opposing force could be how you feel. It could be Satan's work around you. It could be a divisive relationship. It could be the fact that you're tired. It could be the fact that you simply don't know how to say no. It could be the fact that you're a people pleaser. It could be a bunch of different things. It could be the fact that you just don't know Jesus at all. The control of the tongue is more than evidence of spiritual maturity. It is a means to spiritual maturity. That means that even if we feel convicted because we've used words that we ought not to use, God can use that to help us grow in our walk with Him. That God just doesn't leave us stuck in our conviction. He doesn't just leave us stuck in our brokenness. He doesn't just leave us stuck in our flaws and mistakes. That God offers a way out even when we've made a mistake. And even when we've used words that we ought not to use, God can use those words to bring us back to Him. I pray that's what happens to you. I pray that you don't just stay stuck in conviction of the words that you said or maybe just feeling bad because you think that somebody was using words against you that they should not use. I pray that something more happens than that. There's a lot of people who come into the house of God and they get under conviction and don't do anything about it. 
They just wait for the time to pass. They wait for the song to pass. They wait for the preacher to stop preaching. They wait to take a breath for that to subside so they can stop feeling the conviction and they can go on outside these doors and talk about where they're going to go to lunch. That is not what God wants for you. If you are sensing something happening in you, a bit of conviction, it's because God is stirring his affections in you for him for you to change. He's allowing you to realize there's a better future that you need to lean into. And not trust in your own power, but to trust in him. James speaks of these opposing forces. The Apostle Paul knows of these opposing forces God knew when he was bringing the Israelites into the promised land, there were going to be opposing forces. And he says, in the middle of these things, the words you say to one another ultimately are going to convey what you believe about God and about yourself. So the control of the tongue is more than evidence of spiritual maturity. It's a means to spiritual maturity. So when we feel the sting of conviction or regret because the words that we used, God is stirring something in you that he's allowing you to see, feel, and experience that needs to change. And that God, by his grace, he brings us out of the stage of where we were into where he wants us to be by his grace and by his mercy, and we're loved the whole time. There's nothing to fear. When God does a work like that. I heard a story. It's kind of a funny story. But I heard a, a story of a member of a church who was a notorious gossip. It happened to be a female. All right? Don't come at me, ladies. Just happened to be. It's a story. It's a made-up story. Preacher's story. Whatever. Okay? Relax. It's okay. You're in a safe place. We're good. But I heard the story of a member of a church who was in notorious gossip. She would text and type, uh, text and, and talk to people on the phone most of the day, just sharing little trivial tidbits to everybody, and she'd get people riled up, and she would just, you know, everybody kind of knew that that's what she had done, and she had done it for a long time, and she'd, this, it was just very common, and she really couldn't be trusted. Well, one day she came to the pastor, and she says, Pastor, the Lord has convicted me of the sin of gossip. And she said, my tongue is just getting me into trouble. The pastor, knowing that she was not sincere, and because she had gone through this routine before, he guardedly asked her, he says, well, sister, what do you plan to do? And she she said, well, pastor, she says, I think I'm just going to put my tongue upon the altar. And the pastor said, well, ma'am, there's not an altar big enough. Don't shoot the messenger. Words matter, don't they? Proverbs 12, 18 says this, There is one who speaks rashly like a piercing sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Again, you see these, you see these polar opposites. You see them all throughout the Proverbs, actually. I believe that's, it's an attention-getting device. It's also true, but it's an attention-getting device to saying, 
that when one speaks rashly, it's like the piercing sword, and then the tongue of the wise brings healing. How is it that our, our beliefs are actually tied to our words and what comes out of our mouth? How is that? Jesus said, said something very profound, and he brought these ideas together in Luke 6.45. He said, whatever you say flows from what is in your heart. Whatever you say flows from what is in your heart. So the, the positive words we say to ourselves, they have an impact. Again, words either bring life or death, hope or despair. The positive words that we say to ourselves, they motivate us towards good goals. And negative words motivate, motivate us away from good goals. And as I finish, a couple other things to fill in the blank, just so we understand the power of words. Quick finish, application at the end. Negative self-talk produces anxiety, fear, and doubt. Positive self-talk improves attitude, energy, and effort. And don't we just know this to be true? Whether we say something that's defeating within ourselves, we just feel defeated. Or if somebody says something to us that's negative, don't we also feel defeated? But on the other side, when, when we say something to ourselves that's uplifting and true and remind ourselves of God's goodness and of the word of God, don't you feel more encouraged? I do. Or when somebody comes alongside and just reassures you that it's going to be okay, or they, they also pray for you, or maybe they, they share a scripture, and an encouraging scripture with you, you also feel invigorated because we verify that this is true. Negative self-talk produces anxiety, fear, and doubt. Positive self-talk improves attitude, energy, and effort. So what are we to do? What are we to do? If you can't say something helpful, skip it. If you can't say something helpful, skip it. If you can't say something helpful to yourself or to somebody else, just skip it. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. There's another passage of Scripture, Romans 12.9. It says this, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. Cling to what is good. And last thing to fill in. If you think something's good, say it. Say it. Say it. Say it to yourself. Say it to your friend. Say it to your kids. Say it to your grandkids. Say it to your doubting family members your co-workers. If you think something good, say it. Proverbs 16, 24 says this, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. So if you think something good, say it. And I want to end with this. Talking about habits for these seven weeks, now the finale of the series. 
If God has given you a dream and you are forming habits to build the dream that God's given in you, vocalize that dream. Say it from your heart. Say it to him. Say it to somebody else. Say it. Speak it. Believe it. Know it. Give it to God and trust him with that. But in order to do any of these things, what we have to do by God's grace is this. Take the lid off of our self-limiting beliefs. Because while we have the lid on, we're going to be limited by our own potential, by our own thoughts, our own burdens, our own cares. But if we take the lid off of our self-limiting beliefs, we see an unlimited potential in our life with God. Would you stand? If you felt conviction in this message, welcome to the club. You've only been listening to it for about 40 minutes, and I've been sitting in this for about a month. It's got me multiple times, multiple times this week alone. So if you're feeling convicted, that means that God's speaking. You shouldn't feel bad about that. You should feel thankful that God is speaking. The thing you need to do is follow through. Not to just feel that bit of conviction and then leave and start talking about lunch. But to do in the moment what it is that God wants you to do, whether that's coming forward, whether that's something, just a commitment you make right now, maybe what you need to do is just speak a kind word to somebody in the room, and that's okay. We're going to make room for that to happen too. But for you, maybe you came in and you don't even know Jesus at all, and you're, I'm thankful you're here. I realize how much courage it takes just to come in the doors. But if you don't know Jesus, perhaps today's the day you could. Myself and others, we would love to show you from the Word of God how you can commit your life to Jesus, how you can become a born-again believer and stop living under your own power and start living under the power of God. God, thank you. As we transition, God, in this time of ministry, God, we're not changing the channel. We're not tuning away from you. We're simply focusing in more deeply. So God, speak. Move in hearts. Convict, woo, and draw. Bring hope to the hopeless. Love to those who feel unloved by the power of the Spirit.